Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. My usual uh, weekly roundup of links and an interview. I have an interview this week, actually with someone a little bit different, my old co-host, Kate Lawrence. We're going to be discussing IoT, we're going to be discussing tech trends in 2020, and we're going to be discussing tech conferences and events moving forward. But first, my links for the week. First, uh, quite a selection of various different ones here this week. Um, something on New Statesman from uh, Sarah Manavis. And this is why Goodreads is bad for books. Uh, I've been using Goodreads for some time. It's a weird sort of looking site, which is what half the article is about. One of these sites that continues to look slightly outdated um, and can. Um, for blogging books you've read, trying to get recommendations. I mostly use it just so I know what I've read and what I want to read that people have recommended and things like that, not necessarily for any further recommendations. Um, But as with anything, as this article is mentioning, um, once something becomes too big, it can almost be too influential on uh, industry and habits of what people are reading. Uh, And this is one of the the bigger problems of it, in that it's too dominant and it's uh, too impactful. Um, And uh, it's owned by Amazon, which they keep fairly quiet. Uh, you can find that if you want to. They keep the 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 book the the Goodreads library and the Amazon kind of thing fairly separated. But of course, it gives Amazon a lot of data and um, and helps, I suppose, depending on your perspective, their position in selling books. And this article details a few people trying alternatives uh, that try to be a little less. Um, Influential on the industry, maybe, and just more influential on people's tastes. Uh, obviously, the problem with these sorts of things, as many people have tried to uh, unsettle sites like Facebook and things like that, is it doesn't matter how good the product is if no one comes. And I think there are some quite amazing statistics here of the number of users that Goodreads have and some of these sites that have tried to be an alternative. Um, they don't have that many users in comparison. But do they have enough? Do they have enough for what they want to accomplish? I suppose that's the interesting thing. So have a look here. I've looked at, there was a couple of the op, the alternatives I was thinking of. Um, Storygraph, that was it, the Storygraph. 40,000 registered users at the moment. But Goodreads claims, where is it? Uh, 90 million. <laughs> so it's quite... Add a few zeros. And it's been around for 15 years, which, you know, also helps as well. So who 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 knows? We shall see. Um, I think it's interesting that a lot of these sorts of sites for books, movies, TV shows, things like that, are uh, and beers as well. Uh, there's not that many of them in each case. There's usually one dominant one and then people who try to assert that. But and maybe it's too much of a, a minority and... It's only really the connection to Amazon that makes Goodreads keep going, maybe. And if any of the others in the like IMDb and things like that, if they're connected to anybody, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, if you're interested in Goodreads and looking for an alternative, maybe you should go and have a look at some of the others they mention here. And yeah, let me know your thoughts. Let me know how you go with that. Next, uh, there's actually going to be quite a lot of uh, Microsoft and Windows news in the next week, this week, because I can see it coming down the line. But for now... In fact, you can also see some of it being hinted at on the more from Liam Tong, the author of this article on the right-hand side there. But I'm going to focus on one right now uh, from Liam Tong on ZDNet, 
Windows 10 gets Apple's Swift programming language and Google's Flutter. Um, actually, I published an article on using Flutter for cross-platform development uh, two weeks ago, so you can also have a look at that. Find the link at christianjiller.com. Um, and I mean, I'm actually quite surprised it took so long. Uh, well, yes, last time I looked, the Mac OS versions of Flutter were in beta. So I guess the Windows ones were non-existent or in alpha. I'm surprised it took so long for Swift. It is, after all, mostly a C compiler and has been available for Linux for some time. But uh, yeah, now Windows developers have other options. I wonder what the experience is like. I've often found that developing on Windows can be a little messy and confusing because you have these multiple different environments and different ways of installing things, whereas Linux and Mac OS tend to have kind of one terminal environment and, and one place you put these sorts of libraries and things like that. But we will see if you've been waiting to experiment with Swift or Flutter and you are a Windows user, then now's the time to try it. They're both quite interesting, cool languages. Some more Microsoft and Google news. This one's slightly different from Miliano Melino on the UK version of Wired. Google and Microsoft staff set to join the UK's first tech trade union. Tech trade unions are not new. There's quite a few, mostly in the US. Um, tech is an interesting industry to unionize. Um, and this is, this is focusing mostly on, the, I suppose, the quote-unquote knowledge workers in the tech industry, not necessarily the people like the Uber drivers who work for Uber and things like that, but the, the knowledge workers, the ones who are generally in a bigger position of privilege, but um, for various reasons on both sides of the equation, their own rights, but also them wanting to have a say in how a company may operate, um, things like uh, Google and Microsoft getting involved in lucrative military contracts, for example, they feel the need for a union to give them some kind of bargaining discussion power. Um, and generally in the past, I think this is in the UK as well, they have been affiliated with communication workers unions, things like that. But as more and more people become um, a part of the tech industry. And I think there's actually, in the UK, 9% of the workforce, which is actually quite a lot, um, with no real uh, formal union, is, is quite interesting. So the, what is it, the UTAW, United Tech and Allied Workers Union, will be that union. I think I will try and arrange an interview with them. It's something interesting to try and, uh, and hear more. There's actually been a lot of um, consolidating of various tech bodies in the UK. So maybe it's time to speak to a few of them and find out why, especially in these kind of very, very close to Brexit times. Maybe they're sort of solidifying themselves somewhat more independently. And it mentions here that a lot of union workers tend to be older, whereas tech workers tend to be younger. So there's a lot of interesting things there to see how it will fit with um, the, the traditional union movement. And I guess a lot of people could even argue is that will they be any use to you? Do companies and governments respect unions anymore? We shall see. I think it'll be interesting to see how they go. And I'll try and get them on the show soon. One more bit of Google news. This is an interesting article I found on the Analytics India mag, a slightly niche publication from Sajuti Das. Um, did Google open sourcing Kubernetes backfire? I found this an interesting post. A lot of people have, have considered that Google releasing Kubernetes has been definitely good for the ecosystem. Was it good for them? They get to offer cloud services and things like that, 
But did it go too far? Have they had too many competitors in the space? Has it got out of their control a little bit? And this article actually poses that question. And I find it kind of interesting. AWS is still dominating, mostly making revenue out of something that Google created, as are Azure and IBM and uh, many other companies. So, I mean, they don't really speak to anybody from Google in this company. It's in this post. It's all conjecture. But it's, it's actually interesting to know, to, to think about. Sorry, I'm a little bit tired this morning. Um, I wonder how the people behind the decision think. Has it been successful for them? Not sure. It's certainly given them a lot of kudos in the open source ecosystem, but did it give them the business return that they were hopefully asking for? Or maybe they weren't asking for any. Anyway, if you find that interesting, have a read. And yeah, there's a what do you think at the bottom of the article. Leave your comments on uh, their article and uh, also just let me know your thoughts. You can find my contact details for the podcast at christianchiller.com. Or just uh, leave some comments wherever you have found the show. Another tech, um, I can't think of the right word, megalith? Not sure if that's actually the right word, but we'll go for it. Now, this is from Fast Company by Harry McCracken. Uh, Adobe finally figured out how to make PDFs make sense on a phone. This is reported by several outlets, but I just happened to be picking on this article on Fast Company. Um at the moment, you're also, if you're watching the video, watching a, a video on the Fast Company website about comfortable pants. I hope you enjoy that. Anyway, um, Liquid Mode is a new mode that Adobe has been testing for some time. It was actually on the uh, Acrobat Reader on iPad for some time, but every time I ever tried it, it said doesn't work on this PDF. So, <laughs> so, but they're rolling it out a lot to to mobile now. Um, enabling PDFs to flow on screen sizes or whatever device. I've been trying to try this. As I say I haven't had a lot of success. I guess it's, it was an early release and we'll yet to see how successful it will be. But it's quite interesting. PDFs are not dead. A lot of people criticize PDFs, but when PDFs are made properly, they're actually a very good portable document format. See what I did there. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing if... Uh, this, they're claiming it's artificial intelligence. I don't know if that's strictly true. Um, will help make that format more universal. So you don't have to do like I have to now do as an old man, looking up close to try and read the small text in a PDF, but it'll actually fit my device and font settings. We shall see. I read a lot of highly laid out kind of game books and things like that. Um, so I'm intrigued to see how it works with some of those. Maybe that's why it hasn't worked so far because I'm reading some very odd sorts of PDFs. But have you tried it? Uh, if you have, uh, let me know how it went for you. Next, something actually from about a month ago, Jesse Frazell on ACM, the American Computing Magazine, something? Um, uh, magazine, yes. <laughs> uh, the Life of a Data Byte. This is quite a nice post, relatively long, talking about the history of the Data Byte from... Um, are we 1951 all the way through to the present and the future of how we store data, the mediums we store data, and the capacity of that storage. Uh, so if you've always wondered how we got here, and actually it's quite interesting to see, it feels like what we have now, we've had for a very long time, which is actually sort of true. Many people using computers now have never used CD-ROMs, have never used floppy disks, um, and, but... Actually, what we now have is quite new. And the strange thing was that even those things that we had before were also quite new and not with us for that long. 
and some of the stuff, some of the, the, the mediums we use for long-term storage like tape and things like that have actually been around for a very long time. Spinning disks and tape have existed for quite some time and we're still using them. Um, and it's interesting to see what we will use moving forward. Uh, there's lots of advances in kind of uh, solid state drives, which is what most devices are now using. But also I've seen things like storing on DNA, um, storing on all sorts of organic matter is, is quite fascinating to see how that evolves over the next few years, mostly for longevity. States, solid state drives and things like that are great for using a computer for five to ten years, for example, but not for anything much longer. Um, and they start to break down relatively easily, but they suit the commercial use. But for long-term archiving, not so much. So a lot of the research is, is sort of around that. And this is quite an interesting article detailing how we got to where we are and where we're going from here. I think my highlight here was, where was it? Somewhere in here. Um, one of the space shuttles. Yeah, in uh, 1969, the Apollo guidance computer stored data on rope, which makes sense when you think about it. It's not, it's fairly analogous to vinyl, but of course quite slow, but it lasted. This is the important thing. It lasted the rigors of space. Anyway, quite a fascinating article. Uh, if it fascinates you too, go have a read. Next up, an article from Cato S on uh, Medium. Virtual Conferences 2020, a review. Uh, this is basically someone just reviewing how they found their experience of remote uh, conferences and some of the extra tips in addition to your normal tips for presenting at conferences on presenting at remote conferences. Uh, things like time zones, looking for global influence, um, some of the advantages of the accessibility and global reach of virtual conferences, um, and also the safety of discussion spaces and things like that. So there's kind of uh, tips and advice for organizers as well as speakers in this article. Uh, and things like checking over your AV and getting used to talking to nobody, things like that. Uh, I've been doing this a lot with these podcasts and live streams, of course. I've been doing it for some time. Um, I've done a few courses in the past as well, so I guess I got a little bit used to it. But there's this weird kind of crossover of live, not live, that a lot of these conferences are doing at the moment, where you record a video and then you kind of go to live, which I'm still not sure how I think about that, but that's how a lot of them are doing. But if you're about to deliver one of your first remote conferences, then um, have a look here and get some advice. And finally, best love joy on mental floss, the mysterious deaths of six historical figures. I love posts like this. If you ever wonder what really happened to Napoleon, or to Amelia Earhart, or to Edgar Allan Poe. Read about their quite mysterious, intriguing deaths and make up your own minds. So there's one just to go away and have a quiet, intriguing um, peruse of. That was my links for the week. And now here is my interview with Kate Lawrence, plus special guest Kat every now and then. Hello, um, my name is Kate, Kate Lawrence. I'm a tech journalist and a writer, and I write about all things to do with technology from mostly Internet of Things is kind of my backbone, underpinning most of what I write about, to things like smart cities, mobility, um, software, platforms, data monetization, all kinds of stuff. And anyone who has listened to, not watched the show, oh, actually, no, we did have some video on, on some of the very early episodes. Anyone who has 
watched or listened to the, the show before will actually recognize Kate. She was a co-host some time back, um, oh, yes. and um, I decided to, to get her back. I interviewed my old boss a couple of weeks ago, so why not oh. interview my old co-host? Why not? Um, and I wanted to ask Kate a few questions. I wanted to talk about a couple of things. We're going to start with one subject, and that is the IoT slash industrial IoT uh, space that you cover a lot. Mm-hmm. So first, I just wanted to ask from the from the past few months, the past year. I mean, obviously, the past few months have been rather overshadowed by particular events that might have changed mm. things. But you can look further back if you like. Any any trends that uh, you think are interesting in IoT, industrial IoT, that uh, you think people should know about and keep an eye out for? Yeah, I mean, I think the main one, if I'm going to look at home automation, people often think home automation is kind of this like oh, you know, I can connect my lights with my phone and I don't have to flick a switch. But it should actually be a lot more intuitive than that, Mm. which is that it's able to personalise to individual people. Um, Mm. The use of AI and IoT is able to provide um, meaningful data and so that um, devices are able to predict and anticipate um, behaviour and the way the home is used, quite simply. I think a lot of that is really coming together. There's been a lot more efforts to um, standardise and to collaborate, particularly across the um, the challenge of interoperability, which has mm-hmm. always been a pain point for the smart home. And there's been a couple of sort of consortiums that have been really the really leading that. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll give I'll give you those details in the show notes so people mm-hmm. can take a look for themselves, rather than you know go too much into it. The other one is. Um, Mobility, I write a lot about mobility. It's actually a really interesting area. And what what do you mean by mobility? Let's just let's just break that down for people who don't know what. What is mobility? It's basically how we move people. Um I Okay, that that was obvious, but (laughs) I focus on people moving. Um some people will focus on supply chain and cargo and things like that. But I look at people, how we move people, say around a space, around a city, whether that's Mm -hmm. things like um Aircrafts and, and flying vehicles, whether that's vehicles that are in process of being developed, like the um, the vertical um, takeoff landing vehicles that we otherwise call, I think, flying taxis, to things like buses, um, cars, autonomous cars, or autonomous vehicles of different permutations, uh, trains and public transport, bicycles, e-bikes, uh, different types of um I guess, last mile solutions or micro-mobility, which are the smaller kind of devices. So all those kinds of things, um, how we power those things, how we curate them, how we regulate them, all this kind of stuff. It's actually a super interesting area. Especially with mobility, um, has much changed in the past six months? I mean, there's an assumption, especially out of the US, that no one went anywhere, which is not really very true. Um, And especially in Europe, people have been moving around a reasonable amount. Um, But how they move um, around has changed um, yes and no um yeah i think firstly there was a substantial drop in in people movement in the first yeah. few months of COVID 19 so that the um transport providers were losing a large amount of money yeah, uh, that was a significant yeah. problem um people have yes returned to most transport some cities have approached this in different ways because the mm. challenge of we know in berlin the challenge of peak hour you might say I'm going to social dist- socially distance on public transport. No one does. Um, you also no, have the challenge possible. of 
space, but also things like how do you regulate people wearing masks and stuff like that. So Mm. there's been a lot of different efforts by using technology to kind of integrate this. Um, We have everything from in Italy um, where they will stagger the workday so that people come Mm. and go in transport at different times. And they will actually shut down train stations if there's too many people. Uh, We have apps in a a variety of different countries that basically will tell you which carriages are full um, on trains, for example. But they'll also do things like um, if I know it's, I don't know, 9 9 a.m. and I'm trying to get to work and I'm at the station and there's no way I can get on this train without compromising social distancing, assuming it's being enforced, of course, um, it will give me other transport options, um, whether that's things like an e-bike or um, a tram or something else. So a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, there's been also a, a, a big push uh, about how the technology of cleaning, how we clean things, what mm. kind of surfaces we use, um, how we use things like UV lights for cleaning, um, use of robotics for cleaning stations, um, to things like um, the really, really big trend in a lot of cities to change how we use the roads. So the fact that we have mm. people, less people on the roads mean that it was an opportunity to increase bike paths, most cities experienced an increase in um, cycling or people buying bikes. Um, and a lot of, some of those things may remain. I know there's been more push to keep some streets car free. So it's been really, a, a, I think the other thing I'd mention is originally a lot of the kind of micro providers, things like the scooters and the e-bikes, were hit very hard. A lot of them just closed yeah. down because the challenge was, well, we don't know what to do, you know. And so they've actually started working on ways to clean them. Okay, um, so do you think they were shut down um, because of hygiene or for other reasons? And it was just a mostly hygiene, and I think some, okay. some of them were told to, and some of them decided to. So um, it, it was partly a business decision in terms of well, people aren't using them. We don't need to have people going around the streets and tr- recharging um, e-bikes or what have you, or you know, um, or collecting them. But it was also just those those safety reasons. So there's been a, a concerted return to that. So even over the last three months, we've seen a number of mergers. We've seen you know companies acquiring other companies. We've seen yeah. an expansion to other cities. So you know if if it's not a time that transport is dead because we always need to move around a city. We may be at home more. So yeah. the the idea of the kind of um, commute to work has changed for some people, but not all people. And yeah. we are still moving around the, um, the I mean, you, you look at it, you, you think of most people, I think it's, I can't quite remember the statistic, but a large chunk of people will only move around um, up under five kilometres a day um, mm. in, in a radius of where they live, if they're yeah. able to live close to work, of course. Um, and then you have the, the situation of cars, for example, if we do own a car, that's um, stationary for 95% of the day. Yeah. It's it's actually interesting because in a lot of European cities, especially, they were starting to reduce car use, and I yeah. think it definitely went up a bit again. Um, yeah. Whether that was uh, personal car use or shared car use, is, is, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, but I, I definitely saw a lot of the scooters come back and the bikes come back. The we had the jump bikes here from Uber, and then they went mm-hmm. and then they came back again, but they're now lying. Fascinating me was that whether they were keeping them the whole time. But anyway, well, that's <laughs> for it. I mean, I think we um, we we see people using them, but we don't mm. see as many people using them as in perhaps some of the other cities. 
Um, I would disagree with you there, actually. Um, I do see a lot of people using them. Um, yeah, I see yeah. less people. It's not I, I, I disagree with you. I think we just move in different places. I see people using them a lot. <laughs> I would also uh, yeah. say that um, people are, I mean, when we look at these kind of devices, they're mostly used for short distances. Well, that's so the point, though, From home it? to the train station, yeah. for example, or to yeah, a bar last or something mile, like as you that. say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, the other thing and actually, they did release an app here, um, Jelvi, which I haven't really yeah. tried. That is an attempt to to cover end to end, which is interesting as well because it's obviously different providers. That's not all the same provider. Yeah. I don't really know how they're handling that. Yeah, it's they, um, I mean, the 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 cross platform um, or cross cross collaboration is pretty much the the, cri the critical key to all of this. Mm -hmm. Like we've seen in Berlin, for example, the the VVG has had the Conic, which are a a kind of little car, um, a car kind of minibus that you can book on demand. So you have an app and you, or, or you can even phone if you're an older person. And the idea is to have that to augment the need for public transport as mm. a trial. A lot of cities are trialing this kind of stuff. Um, some I haven't of them seen that be terribly vehicles. popular, I must admit. Um, it's actually, it's yeah, very it's been very areas. popular. Okay. It's, yeah. I always see them driving it's around. Popular and empty, with but... a certain cohort of people who need it. <laughs> And I think what it will it it may do is make transport more accessible for people who otherwise may may struggle to get accessible mm. um, public transport. Like not all train stations are yep. wheelchair friendly, for example, things like yep. that. Yep. Um, the other thing I would mention as well, because I think it's um it's worth mentioning, is the fact that COVID nineteen we saw a very large number of bus drivers and infrastructure personnel in public transport die from COVID nineteen. Really? Because, yeah, particularly... In I, I didn't hear that. Where? Where in particular? London and New York are the main ones. Okay. Um, I have written about it a bit, so I can send you some links or put put down in the show notes. Yeah, because they were not protected appropriately in the first few months. Um, and there mm. were, were also cases that were, were well documented of people being spat on and things like that or coughed on that mm. in, as a result died. So this idea of... Um, we've seen the temporary idea, which is kind of changing... The um, where the driver sits to have there's some kind of covering um, mm. that will be a I think that will be a trend that will continue um, in, inevitably when people are designing buses. We've seen this mm. also trajectory move to things like taxis. Um, I could see this happening yeah. with higher cars. Well, and especially I mean, depending on the city, um, trains. Trams, underground trains, you haven't had an interaction with the driver for That's a right. long time. Buses, yeah. depending on the city, very, very little. Most people these days do not buy tickets from the bus driver. In some cities, London, for example, it's not even possible. So That's basically, right. all they're doing is driving um, and a glorified security guard, should they need to be, which does really start to also push them very much in the direction of um, automation because... All they're doing is, I don't think all they're doing is sounds negative, but they're just driving um, now. Yeah, exactly. Which actually well, I find, especially, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've yeah. seen this in London, especially for the bus drivers. I think they must get very, must get very boring because you don't really interact with anybody anymore. Um, yeah. Which is, I mean, not everybody drives a bus because they want to interact with people, but you have all these people constantly going past you and no one ever speaks to you anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind I mean, of a bit depressing, actually, maybe. I think this is the... You know, I still remember the days of, of trams where you had conductors on trams that would come and yeah. buy you a ticket. 
So your ticket, and there was an interaction. They talked to and people. Buses they well. went, I remember um, that. You know, chat, and it was always convivial yeah. most of the time, unless you didn't have a ticket and you got caught or something like that. Um, but you know, it's it's kind of changing how we use transport, and I think as we move towards automation, the other thing that's going to become really interesting when we look at these vehicles is what we're doing with our time when we're not um, mm. we're not driving like. You know, when you have an autonomous a, a bus or a tram or something, it's probably pretty standard. Um, we will see changes, though, in things like um, particularly pertaining to, as we said, COVID-19. Um, doors are going to change how we um, open and, you know, how we enter mm-hmm. and leave vehicles because the idea of getting everyone to get to one door is kind of kind of crazy. Um it's more like we may have temperature checks. We're more likely to be using apps, as, as we said. Um, the other thing I've seen a return of, which I think is kind of funny, because it is QR codes. Um, I don't know. I wrote about QR codes a lot. I don't think they ever went away, to be perfectly honest with you. Well, uh, people they, they always... were kind of only, when I first started writing about them, they were only really a thing in Europe. And I was writing about, uh, there was one particular use case, which was a woman who made... Um, QR codes for nail salons. So basically, you could put the QR code on the nails as they were being painted. And um, while you were in the salon, um, you could engage with particular screens. So you could watch watch a video and engage with it because a lot of the nail salons in Asia have like video screens and things like that. Um, but there's also an app, so you could do things with your nails. Quite a, kind of kind of quirky and weird, but it was always like, yeah, there's all these kind of weird uses, and now we're like. Oh, now I have to install a QR code reader again. Sorry. Um, I'm going to disagree with you again ever so slightly. QR codes have actually been quite popular for some time. Two-factor identification, uh, quick links to websites. Google Lens has been built into many Android devices for some time. QR codes have always been treated as this kind of like out-of-date, slightly daggy kind of technology. But actually, it's used a lot. Um, it's like people diminishing SMS, when actually that's also still used a lot. I yeah, think it's one of those true, technologies true. that people forget is actually quite widely used, and not just in in Asia. I mean, I know WeChat, I think, uses QR. I talk WeChat. We, Alipay and um, mm. a lot of the Chinese payment systems use QR codes, I think. Um, they do. But yeah. also, yeah, two-factor identification codes, they all yeah. use them. To begin with, anyway. Yeah, I up. think the security thing is 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 de- definitely perhaps the strongest use we've had. The need to to secure devices by more than yeah. one means, absolutely. Now, interestingly, just in good timing, I was about to move on to other things, and the uh, garbage collectors have just appeared outside the window. Uh, I don't know if you, <laughs> this recording is picking them up, but we'll just carry on. Not so much. Um, so let's. It's actually a, a nice segue into other uses of quote unquote industrial IoT. I mean, there was lots of things happening already in automations of factories and farms and things like that. Has the past few months with maybe the reduction in wanting people in one place accelerated any of that development or not changed very much? Or um, It depends who you talk to, basically. Um, I mean, we, we it obviously depends is generally the answer. <laughs> we had a lot of workplaces that had to close, like um, some of the automobile manufacturers, for example, closed for you know a month or so um i would say most people are probably back and operational there is obviously mm. variance depending on exactly where you live if there's active cases around the the precinct or what have you um I, but i do think that overall we've seen you know as 
if you look at the factory or the industrial space as a metaphor for digital transformation, we've seen that extended to every other workplace now um, in different permutations. So let's, let's you know, come back idea... to that in a minute. I'd like to dig into that subject a bit more. Let's just stick with in industry and, and farming um, for now. Um, I have a slight agenda on the farming aspect because I know certain countries that rely on cheap labor coming from other places have not been able to get access to that labor. And I wondered if they'd replaced it with anything. Or well, I guess the argument is it's hard to automate things in a few months, <laughs> no matter how desperate I mean, yes and no. I mean, the fact is the technology is there already. There is a lot of technology. Were they using automation. Are they using it more or less or... It depends, <laughs> like you said. Um, it depends on the on the country, and it depends on the actual provider. I mean, the fact is that um, if we look at the the issue of cold chain supply chain from the farm to the the shop or what have you. The, Sorry, just one sec. What was that? You said supply chain. Before that, you said something else. Um, from the farm. You know, before, cold chain. Cold chain. How What's you get chain? stuff fresh? How you get fresh things? Okay. The fresh food, you know or refrigerated food, things like that. Um, you know, these, these problems are not new. I mean, I've been writing about the use of technology in farming for, you know, since 2014. So um, we do have robotic pickers, for example, that can pick different types of vegetables and fruits, like strawberries or lettuce or what have you. We have um, uh, the use of sensors and different um, types of, analytics that, that enable the yield to be greater um, mm -hmm. and it also means that people can instead of a, a farmer using an almanac or something like that like the very old kind of book that they would use generationally they're using an app obviously or an ipad or, or what have you and they're able to predict based on the the, the data and the science mm -hmm. um what is my yield going to be based on the um the, say it's a grain for, t for one of the example or the seed how many lettuces am i going to get um, what, how, how big are they going to be? When, are, when am I going to need them? Based on, you know, there's obviously some, some variance. It's not an exact science, but they will know things like, okay, how many, how many workers do I need? So yeah, that they yeah. can budget for that. What kind of um, distribution will I be able to have in the shops? So, you know, how many um, new, new uh, markets will I recruit? Um, or what, what, how much will I be able to offer my existing clients? Um, and they all know that basically at a very organic level, that if you look at people in a lot of these trades that people say, oh, they're being taken, the jobs are taken away, people aren't there in the first place. Things like fruit picking and truck driving and, you know, these kind of industries where these are jobs, most of the people are over 50 or older. And as, you know, I talk to, I've talked to a lot of people in ag tech, particularly in the US, and they said to me, you know, the pickers they have, they talk to them a lot. And they say, we don't want our kids doing this. Our kids go to university now. You know, mm. this is not the idea of the sort of humble migrant passing down this medial work because no one wants to do it. It's not entirely true. I mean, yes, there are people that will, will take the work, like in any industry, of course, like obviously particularly if you get it, you're working a particular occupation for a visa or what have you. But overall, there are many good reasons for automation. And there are also a number of farms that have been automated completely, bar maybe one or two people. I know mm -hmm. there was one in the UK and also in Japan and China. Um, and that's before you even look at things like vertical growing and stuff like that, um, 
where a lot of the farming for things like mucko greens and lettuces and herbs mm -hmm. is done inside um, because it saves water, it saves fertilisers, it reduces the, you know, the risk of sort of weather problems, things grow faster, things are of better quality, blah, blah, blah. So there's loads happening. There's always loads happening. Well, that's another nice little segue. So you say that people don't want to be doing these manual jobs and they hope there'll be better jobs for um, yeah. their children. And a lot of those are probably going to be kind of knowledge-based. Um, so I guess some of the workers that had the, the easier, or the easiest, let's say the easier transition in the past few months were people doing that kind of work at a computer, um, maybe or maybe not having lots of discussions with, with now there's a siren going past, um, with a lot of um, <laughs> colleagues and things like that. Um, but, um, you know, it was relatively straightforward for them to um, to transition to work from home, yeah, and true. many of them were already doing it. So Agreed. casting aside some of the very obvious things, I think a lot has already been written in fact, too much most has been written about some of the very obvious changes and tools and things that people are using for this now and have been using for some time, I would like to point out. I think the two of us would be happy to point that out. A lot of yeah. this stuff is not new. The amount of people, uh, it's not quite a word, I think it's, but the amount of people using it is obviously new and that put those platforms under a lot of strain. But anyway. All that aside, is there anything less obvious that you think has been interesting that people have been using in terms of software, hardware, techniques that um, that has emerged in the past six months or so that um, was different and interesting? Yes, always. Um, I think perhaps one of the most interesting uses is one of the most disturbing, which is workplace surveillance. Um, we kind of first heard an inkling of this a few years ago, and it was kind of almost like a party trick that, you know, journalists would get would ask their editor to monitor them using a wearable device. Mm. And I'd add to you that in a lot of a lot of workplaces in in big big organisations, there is also always always already a voluntary level of wearables monitoring, where, for mm. example, people wear a, a Fitbit. Um, if they get a certain number of steps, they get a reduction in their um, insurance, their health insurance, for example. But, you know, there's obviously that data is shared with their employer at some level. So we always we already have this kind of stuff. It's not that new. But what we've seen more um, due to COVID-19 is those workplaces were, that weren't used to remote work. So we're not talking about software developers and, you know, tech journalists and people like us. We're talking about workplaces that were probably quite old, maybe they used old systems, maybe most of their their kind of equipment was on site, it wasn't remote. And they're they're very they've been very much wooed by this idea of security surveillance. And maybe it's mm. security's not quite the right word, but the idea that you can use um cameras to monitor your workers while they're working to make sure they're working. You can see what screens they're on. You can see how many keystrokes they do in a day. You can have time and you can time kind of their output, if you like. And whilst we all know, and I think anyone who's even particularly freelancers know, um, time is not a good measurement of output. 
Um, yeah. Output is the best measurement. Like, you know, yeah. what you do in a day, it's about what you what you get done rather than yeah. how long it took you, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. so, you know, some of these ideas, you personally, you've got to rely on this kind of software being accurate because, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't count things like, you know, I might spend time thinking and reading and, you know, all very valuable tasks, but I'm not chained to a desk necessarily while I'm doing that. Um, but it, it also kind of, you know, this idea that um, we work better when we've got someone watching us is pretty ridiculous. And it shows a really fundamental lack of trust in someone's, uh, you know, a manager and their employees. I mean, how do you think that's going to motivate people to work? It doesn't. Yeah. It just intimidates them and it frustrates them. And it also ins- it's also quite insulting, the idea that um, people in an office are given the autonomy and the time to have chats they can do kind of, you know, what we call, I guess, the water cooler talk, where you just have a chat while you're making a coffee or whatever. Those kinds of things are okay, but if you're working at home, you have to be switched on and actively working and visibly working the whole time, which we know is not the way humans are. We, no, we're here no, 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 as, we are valued for being humans because yeah. we have these non-automation capabilities, our creativeness and our empathy and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, then you have certain employers that want people to be more kind of automated or what have you. So it's... um, It's it's interesting you mention this because it's not... It's a very real problem. Yeah. It's obviously not a new phenomenon um, and neither is the the counter to that. I think I read stories about some of of the most famous kind of intellectuals in history, Isaac Newton, and I think he's the main example I can think of, would work like four or five hours a day. And they still managed to produce an amazing amount of materials. Um, But ironically, the time he was around was probably also the time when the kind of, I think they used to call it in the UK, um, time and motion studies and these sorts of things come in around industrialization about, yeah. I mean, I suppose the interesting thing is with industrialization, in theory, the more you work, the more you output. And so whilst I'm not agreeing with it as an idea, you know, just treating humans as, as a resource to exploit, um, you can you can kind of see a correlation. They probably make more mistakes, but they still make more stuff. Whereas in the knowledge economy, you're right that it's not strictly true. You might spend six hours thinking, and then have an amazing hour of productivity and create loads of benefit to your company. Mm. Or you might spend mm. eight hours working and accomplish absolutely nothing um, because you've just been faffing around. So I don't know. I mean, um, do you think that? Um, the kinds of companies that have used this kind of technology to monitor their staff or the kinds of companies that would have probably been doing things like that anyway, the kind of boss like looking out the window the whole time to see what their workers were doing and they're just taking their paranoia to a different place. <laughs> uh, yes and no. I think they probably SM, largely SMEs, so companies that are kind of – they maybe have a small staff that have a lot more work than staff, so there's a lot to do, mm. and they probably think that, you know, people they don't they also have a suspicion of the way people work. They're based on the idea that you know, nine to five, you come in, you have to sit there, what have you. Um, and I think can I I'll, I'll add one thing. This is maybe a, another segue to something we were sort of thinking about yesterday. Um, is how much time you think about it. If you're if you're in a like think back to it might might be might take a, take a while but think back to when you were last in a physical workplace how much yep. time do you spend in meetings um, 
Most personally, not so much, but a lot of people do. And I always thought that meetings were just like a badge of status more than actual purpose. People who pretend to be, well, not pretend, people who act like they're busy all the time as like a, look how important I am, and actually, hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and I've had one idea I've kind of encountered, which I kind of like, which you probably relate to as someone who works in documentation, is the idea that meetings are no good unless you write things down. We Mm. all know that, so that there's actionable um, outputs and who does what, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take that a step further, do you need to have the meeting? Could you have, for example, a collaborative document, even a, you know, I don't know, a Google Doc or something, where people are able to collaborate on something and to um, provide their own input, and et cetera, et cetera, and do it in a way that's probably more efficient and, and more thoughtful. It's, um, you know, that collaborative kind of brainstorming where, because people often say, well, you know, what I'm really going to miss if I'm not in a workplace is that collabor- collaborative aspect of being able to encounter problems together or, you know, and I know how clump, how clunky it is. I mean, you know, I've worked on articles with people collaboratively where you literally sit on the on, on Skype or some some software and you go through an, a, like a, a page of text or you go through website content or like the words and you go through the words, like each sentence and you're trying together verbally to kind of come up with stuff because sometimes you need to do it a little bit verbally and sometimes you do mm. it in writing and it's this kind of ongoing evolutionary yeah. process. I think we're going to see a lot more in that area. I think I'm going to partially agree and disagree with you there. And I think a lot of this comes from the past few months where when there was an option, when there was a choice, everyone said, oh, we don't need to meet in person. We don't need to do this in person. We can do it remotely, work from home, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then it became not a choice <laughs> for a period of time. And the only option was to work remotely. People realized that working remote, working from home, wasn't all it was cracked up to be when it was the yeah. only option. Um, yeah, okay. And there's a lot of the incidental stuff that yeah, it feels yeah. like you don't need, but is quite important. Oh, agree. A lot of the time when you have conversations with people, and there's a lot of stuff that's said that is not necessary for the intended purpose, but is necessary for other reasons, kind of human reasons, yeah. social reasons, the unintended consequences of saying something that triggers an idea, things like that. Often the written word is easy to misconstrue because you don't see mm. people's um, feelings around it. I was involved That's actually true. in a conversation yesterday where we had a Slack thread that had gone on and on and on and on and on and not really getting anywhere. And I just said, let's just jump on a call and let's just talk. And we accomplished much more in 40 minutes than we had in weeks of a Slack thread with people misunderstanding misunderstand Agree, okay. Yeah, so, agree. I think it's a mix, it's definitely a mix, um, but I think, interestingly, especially for the people who are always very pro-remote working first, et cetera, et cetera, have mm. realized that it does have a lot of drawbacks. Now being forced yeah. into everybody doing it, or lots of people doing it, we've now realized, actually, there are some problems with it. And I'm slightly skeptical, and I've mentioned this a few times in the podcast, of there's a lot of media, especially coming out of the US, where there's, I mean, no because that's English language, which is what mm. I'm reading, um, but also because a lot of people in the US live in large houses with lots of space. Exactly. And, you know, yep, exactly. This glamour of remote work. I mean, actually, for yeah. people living in big cities and, and things like that, it's not glamorous. It's actually quite uncomfortable and isolating and bad for your yeah, health. Absolutely. And you don't have much separation or much space and things like Absolutely. that. So 
Absolutely. I think, I think, it's, I think um, we have realized, I think the change will be in the future. We realize it is possible. If someone says, hey, I'd like to work from home for a week, the boss will not say, mm, well, i got to think about it. They'll say, sure, we know that's possible. And I think that's what will change when people want to do it. And the option is there. It's not um, excluded. But, and I'm talking medium to long term. Obviously, in the short to medium term, mm-hmm. it's going to stay mostly mm-hmm. remote for now. But actually, I think more people want to get back to face-to-face um, work than is alluded to in the media. I think the media is being a little selective on, on the possibly because it's yeah, mostly written I, by people who work remotely. <laughs> I, I'd say I'd make a few points there. I mean, firstly, I agree with you. I think um, it is glamorized by people who haven't done it for a number of years. Um, mm. Particularly if you're not in, if you're in a scenario like a many people we know, where you may be in a one a one bedroom house or a bedsit, where you're trying to navigate um, with two different people or more people. Um, and try and do things like Skype meetings and calls all day, extremely mm. difficult. Um, mm. If you're trying to do, you know, presentations online, I don't know, anything like that, and you have other people to navigate around, it's very difficult when you can't close a door or, you, or there's, you know, poor soundproofing or what have you. Then you have people with children. A lot of people are having to try and do childcare or t- teaching children, which is altogether a different skill at the same time. Uh, if you live in cities like New York or London or even parts of Melbourne in Australia or Sydney, uh, you may not even have a living room. You yeah. may just have bedrooms because that's the way they set it up to save money or to make money. You know, the landlord yep. make money. So you've got yep. nowhere to go. You're kind of trapped. And yep. that's a really, a really difficult scenario to be in. And then when you've got people that are kind of, you know, experience it for the first time, they're like, oh, isn't this great? Yeah. I can walk from my bed to my couch. And you might say, well, yeah, it's great, but when you're you're you know you don't have room in your bedroom for a desk because your place is so small, or or what have you. And the other thing I would add, which I think has been really underlooked in the discussion, is for a lot of people, particularly people with disabilities or caring responsibilities, they have been asking for these basic rights for years, even at an educational level, at university, whatever, mm. and told no, it was never possible. You cannot do this stuff remotely. No, we can't yeah. do it. Yeah. And now they're yeah. like, well, suddenly, like, you, you might see your world as, as being closed because, you know, you can't go out or what have you. My world's finally opened. So now all yeah. these things yeah. have are, are an opportunity that's open to me. And I think that's something that needs to be very much respected. And I really hope that some of those things will stay open for those people because it is a lot of people. You know, you think about yeah. 20% of the population has a disability at any time. That's a lot yeah. of people. And it might be people at home and they're probably um, on a low income if they're not working or what have you. So, you know, uh, all these kind of things uh, are fundamentally changing how we live mm. our lives. Now, let's see there. Kate, do you have a few more minutes? Because I had one other thing I wanted yes. to ask you about and we're running a little tight on time. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you recently attended. Now, both you and I had uh, attended a lot of events in the past. Yes. A large <laughs> amount of our output, actually. And that's not really been happening. And covering remote yeah. events is really not that interesting. It's basically writing about YouTube videos, which is not particularly interesting, I must admit. Um, but um, so for the first time in about six months, you attended a sort of in-person event. And I was quite pleased that it actually happened here in Berlin. It was IFA. So firstly, just for a little bit of background, maybe you could explain what IFA is, was, mm. and uh, what they did this year differently. Yeah. Absolutely. IFA is basically the German version of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in um, uh, Las Vegas. 
So basically, mm-hmm. it is an opportunity to go and see consumer tech. You're talking about vendors. You're talking about people doing business deals. You're talking about the public coming and checking it out. You're talking about journalists and analysts and all this kind of stuff. So usually, it's a five, six-day show. There's lots of booze events. There's lots of meetings. There's lots of that kind of touching and, you know, engaging with products that you're not, I mean, if you're a member of the public, you can't buy stuff, but you can see what, what the trends are, what's happening. You know, it's, it depends what your interest is. I mean, you know, if you're someone who gets very excited about fridges, you might be like, yeah, you know, some of those smart fridges are kind of cool, but then you've got lots of vacuum cleaners as well. Not so, not so exciting, <laughs> but you know, yeah, what they've, full what's happened of is generic. this, And and can I just add as well, a lot of these, this is something that often people don't realize that, you know, the the issue is now is that we can't have, okay, we can't have large groups. Yes, we can't have the spread of disease. The fact is that um, there's been a lot of reports the last few years out of um, particularly CES and Mobile World Congress of people getting uh, skin conditions, foot and mouth, foot, hand, foot and mouth disease, hand, foot disease, something like that, from touching a lot of poorly cleaned wearable technology wearing it getting head lice stuff like that so you know this is already a problem and then you've got kind of you know the added layer of COVID-19 and we know as people who go to trade shows and and big conferences people always get sick always there's lots of people in confined spaces you've got long hours you've got lots of walking because usually they're massive venues like can uh, I just quickly add there the one thing that the past few years really helped me was not shaking people's hands yes. and washing my hands a lot. So <laughs> yeah, actually, something I was doing for years that people thought I was weird for doing ended up being something everybody's doing. <laughs> you, were, you were the um, soothsayer of the future. It stopped making me sick. It, well, I still yeah, got sick. It's I got, you know, I've, I've got really sick before. Um, so basically, to cut a long story short, um, IFA, what they did this year was they've kind of pulled apart the whole event and they've kind of you know, they've kind of picked a few bits that they need to do and they've spread it over the year. So I went particularly to um, one event, which was a mobility conference called Shift Mm -hmm. 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a conference and then there was also some stalls, like stall holders, which I'll explain in a minute. And separately, Mm -hmm. in a separate building, there was press conferences, which is where you get all the big announcements from, you know, Huawei and NVIDIA and, I don't know, LG and blah, blah, blah. So there was that separate as well. So I focused really on this mobility conference because I do a lot of writing in that space. And it was a really interesting experience. I mean, firstly, um, you have the usual caveats of when you go into a conference, you have to get bags checked and all this sort of stuff and ID and all that. Okay, fine. Um, But you also have the judicious constant use of hand sanitizer. And so if you're going to go around booths, for example, even if they're socially distanced and there's less of them, that's a lot of hand sanitizer, let's face mm. it. So you're going to be less likely perhaps to pick things up. Um, but I'm, I would add that most people still had things like flyers and, you know, that kind of stickers and things like that. That's the um, delicious, kind of... delicious ironies of this past few months. So, you know, I don't know, a few years ago we were being told in the efforts to become paperless that we would indeed like just have a QR code and you would download someone's press kit or what have you. And mm-hmm. I was often given... Um, Memory, uh, QR codes, eh? I thought they were outdated. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was often given the, the ubiquitous USB stick, which, of course, we all know is something to be avoided because it's, you know, very easy to put a virus on it or something like that. Um, so there was that issue. You had, you know, harder to, to navigate around 
around booths and stuff. I mean, mm. you know, that's fine. But then you had the actual conference venue, which was like a large, for sake of argument, a large conference hall. It was very spread out. They radically shifted the numbers from, you know, a few thousand to a few hundred. Uh, there, I think it was tens of thousands, yeah, if more, yeah, not more exactly. previously. No, I just mean at this particular conference. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so you had, you know, very distant chairs. You had um, yeah. one stage with a very large screen. Uh, and and you could wear your you had to wear a mask except when you were sitting down which is fine mm -hmm. but um, so basically what they did which I think is kind of interesting and worth mentioning this is this is the approach I would probably recommend to other conferences who have the funding and mm -hmm. all that stuff they had literally a hybrid so there was there was the live event um, so you could be sitting there you could see uh, actual speakers and you could see speakers online. So videos, mm -hmm. which yes, we know is not as not as exciting sometimes, but a lot of the videos they made a concerted effort to do something different. So, for mm -hmm. example, there was a woman who did was talking about from I think she was from Movie, um, a mobility company in Montreal, Toronto. Um, sorry, I, I think it's Toronto, and she was literally did a video of walking around her town and showing them the mobility solutions, which is much more interesting than a PowerPoint. Let's face it. I mean. Mm -hmm. We know um, from making, you know, making events that most, a lot of these kind of a, a conference um, presentations are pre-recorded because it's just good practice. And then what you do is you'll do live questions or live Q and A or, or panels or something like that. Yeah. So there was that kind of thing where you really had an opportunity to do something a bit different. Um, and then you had things on the stage with people talking on the stage. We have people here. We have people there. But it also, what it really did was it really gave a rich diversity to the people mm -hmm, who we mm -hmm. speak. I mean, we go to a lot of events in Europe. I know when I go to IoT events, I know who's going to be there almost. I know it's because there's a large chunk of people that are always the sponsors. They will always yeah. speak. There's always going to be IBM. There's always going to be Microsoft. There's always going to be, you know, NVIDIA, people like that. Um, so, but what they, what now you can, you have the opportunity to have people from other countries who, and time zones but what they yep. really couldn't make it. So there were people from Africa, there were people from Asia, yep. there were people from Australia, like um, different, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it really makes a difference to the discussion. You're not just talking about Europe-centric kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, particularly important for mobility because European cities, are so, uh, not, maybe not all, but historically based on this kind of, I think the term is medieval idea, Mm. The way they're the way they're built and you know the cobblestones and all that stuff. So it's an opportunity to look at how other cities do things and how they're able yeah. to iterate more rapidly. Um, yeah. While the cities are, are active, like what because you know we're not just building tomorrow, we're doing it now for today. So that kind of stuff is really cool. Um, but the other thing the conference did was they also had standalone sessions online. So mm. if you were just doing the online conference, you could also see sessions that only you could see as online people. And then they try and do stuff that uh, maybe works a little bit, but not so much, which I think mm -hmm. all the conferences are struggling with, which is, you know, I wrote a white paper about this issue recently, the virtual conference challenges. Um, yep. Trying to, firstly, at, how do we add value to sponsors? Yeah. So people that want to show their wares or stool holders, those kind of people on, online, like how do we do that? And how do we get people talking to each other? Because we know yeah. that we go to conferences to network. And every time, it's without a fact, the most interesting conversations involve those informal chats. It's standing in line for a drink. It's, you know, I don't know. Women always chat in the toilets. <laughs> it's just what women yeah. do. 
Um, it's, you know, waiting for the tram, whatever, you know. Um, and so it's how do we, as people, how do we get people feeling like they have that social experience um, when they go to a virtual conference? What kinds of things can we set up? And, you know, there's a lot of really good, good examples. There's things like, and it's also, I should add, the challenges if you've been in front of a, a computer all day watching a conference. Firstly, yep. we know that people aren't going to sit there for six hours because unless you're terribly um, focused, it's very hard to do, I think, for your brain. Mm. Watching, you know, watching six hours of 20-minute talks is very difficult um, or 10-minute talks, what have you. Um, and then you've got, you know, I, I'm often surprised why conferences don't do things like just the audio so that you can go and do your cleaning or your cooking at home or go for a walk well, they, and listen, you know? I mean, you can. You can just not watch it. I've done that many times, but you yeah. do miss yeah, a little bit too. of... Yeah, um, me too. Yeah. But you miss the so, slides. Sometimes so the slides just, are just, just as a, as a question, because to be honest with you, IFA is one of the only conferences I've seen who's done this. So for one of the large international mm. events, but there's a couple of others. But one yeah. of the big, reasonably well-known ones. Did it work? Was it worth it? And do you think this will be the medium-term option? And if so, would you would you go to more? Did it work? I mean, okay, so people who weren't us, we're paying seven hundred euros a ticket. Mm. So it's a you know it's a reasonable investment for a workplace. Um, I should I should add a caveat there. I mean, it's something I'm often critical of the mobility and the smart city conferences. They're often paid and they're often about people talking, yeah. you know, from more academics and uh, OEMs and stuff rather than the people that use the services. I'd like to see a bit more of that. Yeah. Um, yes, it worked. I think they, they made a really good effort and they made a good starting point. I think there's always room to improve. I think I would have liked to see a shorter day that kind of yeah. – you know, I think they did. They did do the sort of ten to six. I think something like ten to two or something is more more realistic with maybe mm -hmm. um, other options. Um, can I give you an example? I, I did. I did see um, when we when we go to uh, Mobile World Congress and and EFA and these conferences, there is a company called Showstoppers who do what they yeah. call. Um, okay, historically, it's an event put on for for press where. People can set uh, startups and companies can set up a stall to show off what mm -hmm. they're, they're making or what have you, their product, and mm -hmm. people can go there and as journalists and, and drink a lot of alcohol for free and ask people lots of questions and get interviews. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's actually it's a really useful event. You get lots of really good good ideas and see trends and stuff. Um, obviously, that stuff is not the same. It's Yes, you can walk around a booth, but it's a bit sterile and it's not as convivial. Yep. You can't you can't have a you know a group of people asking questions together and like ah oh, so yeah what about that bit you know those kind of things so what they did, what yeah. Showstoppers has been doing to their credit is basically they've been setting up small events where there's maybe yeah. say let's just say for a sake of argument it might be wearable tech they'll have five different people um, so you go to say a Zoom a Zoom call what have you um, they will do presentations then you have the option to go in sort of small groups and ask. The, the people questions so as a, as a group like or you can obviously contact them privately but it works very well because firstly it, it, it often you, you often just want to know a few things so that you can write something you don't need to know their life story because they should have you know if they've got to this stage they'll probably have a decent press kit anyway but it gives you that chance to kind of check a few things or to you know um, ask some stuff and that's been really I think they did a really good job with that so I think we're going to see I would like to see a bit more of that sort of stuff because it's 
it's not just people pitching their idea because we, we you know, those pitching competitions and stuff, they, they get pretty painful after a while. Once you get to through 10 people, you're like, oh, God, when's it going to be over? Mm-hmm. They're all great ideas, but it's just the style is quite tiring to, to focus on, I guess, even the short ones. So those kind of interactive things where people get to talk to speakers, um, I think we will see more kind of VIP options for conferences where yep. you can pay yep. more and you get that. Yep. Or you get the I've, one. I've seen one, that at a few dev dev events, yeah. Or you yeah. get private content, or maybe you get tutorials or a day of training beforehand, things like that. So there's going to mm-hmm. be some really good stuff coming out. And I mean, yes, you could do this stuff in person, and and you know you might have a more memorable experience. But I think this is a good option. And so yes, I do think that the hybrid conferences are the future. I know the five G conferences. The long term future, or. Just the medium term? Like, do you think some of the benefits will outlive the need? Or do you think as soon as we can, everyone no, will be back to what um, we did before? I think, it, I think they will see it as a, an additional business opportunity. Right. So that it will be another way to make revenue. Because a lot of conferences are already live streaming on um, whether they're using yeah. Facebook or what have you, or YouTube. Yeah. They're recording the videos for later. Yeah. But by doing it this way, they can actually get people to pay for those tickets yeah. Who, yeah. who might watch it later. That's a huge advantage. Um, Secondly, they also have all the um, the data on the people that attend. They get mm-hmm. the um, you know their, their contact details to, to pass on to the sponsors what, and the what they speakers. have watched and what they attended. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All that stuff is very rich uh, data, very useful. Data, they, data if, is. If they're using uh, the events in a good way, they should be doing exit surveys and you know, uh, we know not everyone fills them out, but you get a little bit. Um, that yeah. stuff is very helpful. So all this stuff gives you very good impact on you know what people are watching, you know what they're, you know yeah. how long yeah. in a, a video they stop and they go they they walk away, yeah. like like you know when you're in a room and and then the whole front row leaves, at at a conference awkward but when you um, when you're home it's not such an issue. So you know we're getting all these kinds of opportunities. So I think it will remain. Um, would I go again? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it was a good effort. I would probably go to less of it because I didn't need to physically be there. Um, I think that was always the case with those, even with yeah. Ether in normal times, that we went to a lot of stuff that was not. Uh, no, I mean, I, I would disagree. I didn't need to see all those vacuum When you go moments. to the showrooms, you want to see the tech because sometimes watching yeah. a video is not the same as picking it up or, you know, but we no, can't no, do that sure, anyway. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. All right, Kate, um, this has been very interesting. Good to have you back. Um, just for anybody who wants to keep um, in touch with you, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Do you have a website or social media? or? Yeah, I mean, I will post some links from our discussion today um, below the show notes and my, my contact details, of course. Um, I am quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter. LinkedIn is obviously my name. My Twitter handle is at Kate, which is C-A-T-E underscore Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E and Yes, I'll have that underneath because we know spelling names is a, a pain of everyone's day. Um, it's Yeah, <laughs> I had a rather <laughs> embarrassing time. I mispronounced someone's name like three times yesterday. Anyway, let's... <laughs> so, I would add something to that, Chris. Um, yeah. There is actually a another tech journalist in Berlin called Chris Ward. So Oh, it's a very go. common name, which is why I don't <laughs> use it online so much. Uh, there's yeah. a Daily Express journalist... Uh, Chris Ward, it's actually extremely common, which is why I use the nickname Christian Chiller. I use a nickname yeah. for the opposite reason of many people, so people can actually find me. True, true, true. <laughs> if you looked up Chris Ward, you would probably not find me. Um, 
Okay, thank you very much for your time, Kate. Welcome. That was my interview with Kate Lawrence. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I have lots of things in progress. Nothing has really massively changed on the website at the moment, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. I actually had a creative um, projects weekend, uh, and I wrote the first few chapters of two new books, which obviously are not available yet. I also did some reorganizing of the website, which you cannot see yet. It is not live, but it is in progress behind the scenes. I spent a lot of time automating a lot of things. So a lot of my updates are going to get uh, a lot quicker and more seamless moving forward. But you won't be seeing that quite yet. <laughs> it's kind of waiting for these next few releases before they will start triggering. Um, I did a, a Dexpose with um, the Microsoft Quantum Development Kit yesterday. So that should be on YouTube now. It hasn't come into the feed yet. And uh, tomorrow, uh, so Thursday of, of the week that this podcast is released, I will also be doing um, a solo adventure with Alone Against the Flames, a solo version of Call of Cthulhu. And finally, the second episode of Board Game Jerk will be releasing um, today, I think. So it should be in the feeds already. That's our second episode. And we should be releasing the second episode of Stories About People, which you can currently see on my website preview here, next week. So lots of new things coming out over the coming weeks. I will have um, a few articles out this week as well on developer experience, um, sort of riffing off the live streams I've been doing. So you can also look forward to those. Um, so until next time, thank you very much for joining me. <laughs>